Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor of the University of Iowa, and I'm co-host of the channel, along with Robert Talese of Vanderbilt University. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books in ethics, metaphysics, epistemology, and many other areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Marcin Mukowski, Assistant Professor of Philosophy at the Institute of Philosophy of Mind of the Polish Academy of Sciences. His new book, Explaining the Computational Mind, is just out from the MIT Press. The computational theory of mind has its roots in Alan Turing's development of the basic ideas behind computer programming, specifically the manipulation of symbols according to rules. That idea has been elaborated since in a number of very different ways, but in some form it remains at the core of the cognitive sciences today. In explaining the computational mind, Yukowski defends a minimalist view of computationalism as information processing with the intention of providing a general view of computational explanation that is intended to cover all the specific forms in which information processing explanations appear. On Milkowski's view, Jerry Fodor's slogan that there is no computation without representation should be replaced with the claim that there is no representation without computation. And David Marr's computational, algorithmic, and implementation levels for describing complex systems should be replaced by talk of different compositional levels in a mechanistic explanation. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, Marcin Milkowski. Uh, hi, welcome to New Books and Philosophy. I'm delighted to talk to you today. I'm very pleased to be talking with you about your new book, um, Explaining the Computational Mind from, from MIT Press. Um, uh, so let me, just to you know, start us off uh, with a little bit of the, the background of the book, um, uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit about, about yourself um, and how you got to philosophy and your, your interest in this, in this area of philosophy and how, how you came to write this particular book. Well, basically, my interest in philosophy started with literature. Uh, in high school, I started to read Umberto Eco and uh, Thomas Pynchon, and that got me interested in the discussions over those books. And the discussions were not really about literature. They were, they were about philosophy. So when I went to the University of Warsaw, it was just natural to uh, uh, enroll to philosophy courses and to start uh, thinking about those things. And then, of course, it became uh, an interest in itself. But actually, at first I thought I'd be uh, uh, doing history of philosophy, especially German philosophy. But uh, simply a year in Berlin uh, made me... uh, someone who's really not into that because it turned out that people were interested in small details and not about not in arguments that those German philosophers had. So I went back and I thought, if I want to write a PhD in philosophy, it has to be about something which is really connected with current science and with arguments. And that started me thinking about writing a PhD about uh, Dan Dennett's philosophy of mind, and since he's a, a defender of computational theory of mind, uh, well, that got me interested. And at the same time, I did a lot of translations about uh, IT, um, computers, things like that for major companies, and I did some small artificial intelligence projects. Projects, And, well, that got me some more into that, so basically, uh, my interest in AI was growing uh, stronger, and that was converging with my interest in philosophy. So I think that is the major reason why I got interested in the field, and that was the basic uh, reason why some eight or ten years ago I started to think about 
computational theory of mind. So with that, which is basically, um, I mean, all of all of what you said in terms of artificial intelligence and IT, that is all uh, very much in the the history of of the computational theory. Um, one of the 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 main question or questions that the book addresses um, is what is a computational explanation. Um, and of course, embedded within that is, is what is computationalism itself. And you you define it as just you know information processing, um, and that that you understand is just the transformation of information, which is not necessarily, uh, as I understand you, uh, the rule governed manipulation of formal symbols, which is how someone like you know Haugland might describe it, or Fodor, or any of the other you know many of the central figures in in the traditional or classical computational theory um, so can you um, can you elaborate a bit on your in, your interpretation of the computational model as just information processing I think the, the good uh, way to start thinking about computation is to take some examples and some simplest tech, technological examples have to be on your mind when you think about computers and there are some obvious examples that cannot be really analyzed using this rule-based symbol manipulation kind of theory. If you think about such a, such a simple simple device as an AND gate, which is a simple device that realizes the conjunction function uh, with a mechanical uh, or electronical uh, equipment, it simply does not have any rule in it. It simply works that way. You don't have to have a rule to run the end gate. It simply is a simple, usually simple switch. So there is no place for uh, symbols or rules there. Uh, and you might think that bigger computers are just larger collections of those very, very small devices that do not need any rules for them. Some computers, of course, uh, can interpret programs. These, these are very uh, important features of computers. But if you, if you want to define computation that covers all mundane examples of computers, I think we should start with as little as possible, not just to focus on uh, Turing machines and very uh, spe- special programmable devices. And that made me think about getting away from rules. And another thing that got me against uh, the uh, symbol manipulation thesis is that in terms of computability theory, symbols is actually just any token from an alphabet or from a set of discrete or continuous different entities, and that's it. There is no connection to what uh, people would call symbol in a theory of mind or uh, in aesthetics or in psychology. So I think the notion might be misleading to people that would think, well, that's something that is actually something like a quasi-linguistic symbol. And unfortunately, Using those ambiguous terms uh, makes people uh, skeptical of the whole idea of the computational theory of mind because they don't see any rules, they don't see any symbols. And I think it's right. In some ways, there are no symbols as, as we uh, usually call them in computers, at least not in all computers. And especially, it might be doubtful whether anything like... Uh, quasi-linguistic symbols are in the minds or in the brains of simpler animals, such as frogs, which do actually process some information from the outside. So I think that was the basic reason that uh, made me uh, skeptical of the traditional computational theory of mind and the ways it was um, reconstructed by people like Hogeland or Fodor Right. Um, well, um, 
one of the one of the things. I mean, before we get to directly, the the original people were elaborating it with with the idea of explaining the mind in mind, um, and you seem to have a much sort of broader project. Let's let's first get a grasp on what it is to have a system of some sort that is processing information. Um, and and then and then we'll get to the mind, you know, somehow. So so let me just uh, before we go in that direction, um, let me ask one of the obvious sort of responses to a more the generalized picture of computational explanation that you want to give as just information processing um, is that it's going to be too liberal. Everything's going to be processing information in your sense. Um, so how do you, that's the sort of pan-computationalist sort of response, um, that just thinking of computationalism as information processing is just far too weak to separate the systems that we really want to talk about as really information processing from, from anything else. So how, how do you respond to that initial, initial objection or response to your interpretation of computationalism? I think uh, there is something right in this uh, kind of objection, is that the, the intuition behind that objection is that we don't want to make computational theory of mind too trivial. I mean, claiming anything trivial uh, wouldn't really make any good for a computationalist. So the theory shouldn't be simply true by definition. And of course, one is we might worry that if information as a notion is applicable to basically any physical process, then everything would turn out to be a computer. And then, of course, minds wouldn't be any much different from anything else, so they would be computers as well, but there is nothing fancy about it, so uh, computational theory of mind is not, no longer an interesting thesis. And I think if that were the case... Uh, the information processing view uh, that I have would be actually not a very good idea. But uh, I think uh, that on the one hand, computationalists do not have such a simple view that everything is a computer and then there are no differences between computers. Even if you believe that everything basically is information. And there are people who say that yeah. everything can be explained in terms of information processing. These are, are people in theoretical physics. So uh, they might be right. They might be wrong. Uh, it might turn out that some of those speculations turn out to be fruitful for some areas. I, I don't care really about that uh, question, whether uh, the pancomputationalism uh, as a whole is true. But at the same time, they see a difference between those basic uh, descriptions of, of computational processes, uh, of physical processes as information processing and the processes in the brain. So basically, they want to say that, that there is something special about uh, the brain or minds uh, uh, in particular. Uh, but on the other hand, I'm not a computer computationalist because I think that uh, to talk about information processing in a meaningful way, we need to talk about uh, systems that perform those information processing operations. These systems can be called mechanisms, and here I use the new mechanism, one of the uh, most important right now, uh, conceptions of explanation and prediction in uh, philosophy of science, and mechanisms here uh, will be understood as functional systems or as systems that have a function to compute. Uh, now, the notion of function is by itself a large topic, and I try to be as quick as possible in my book, but the main idea is that if a system was designed by some designer according to some plan or it was evolved uh, uh, in, in some way so that it is a computational system 
then it has a function of computing. Otherwise, it might be, it might have a description in terms of computation, but it's not really a computational system. That's one part of my non-computationalist answer. Another part is that to really have some use for a computational theory of mind, we need to use computational explanation to get useful predictions and explanations that cannot be produced uh, otherwise. So if you have a simpler physical story about something uh, which can predict all the features of that something without positing anything like computation, then actually I think the computational uh, description of that something will be spurious. So if you have a vacuum cleaner, uh, it's not really performing, it's not any computation that produces random numbers by moving the particles of dust inside, because you can explain the movement of particles of dust without really referring to any uh, processes that were supposed to create random numbers. No, the users of vacuum cleaners are not interested in getting random numbers from vacuum cleaners. They are interested in cleaning their floors. And that's basically uh, the idea of getting rid of those uh, overly liberal uh, ascriptions of computation. If something doesn't have a function of computation, and if the... Uh, explanation doesn't give you, or prediction in terms of computation, doesn't give you anything valuable, more general than any other description, then basically there's something not really right about your computational hypothesis about a system. Okay, so there's, there's a, you've brought up a number of very uh, different issues that I want to um, to get back to as we, as we proceed. Um, uh, but one one of the things that you that you do in the book when you explain your view is to use examples, you know, four specific examples of computational models. You know, the classical computational, the connectionist modeling, um, then uh, examples from computational neuroscience, and then what you call radical embodied um, robotics. So maybe you could. Um, uh, flesh out your view of information processing using, uh, you know, briefly explaining how it appears in those four different uh, models, which which recur throughout the book, you know, as illustrative purposes. Of course. Uh, well, the first example is one of the classical research uh, pieces by uh, Herbert uh, Simon and Alan Newell. Herbert Simon being the one of the few cognitive scientists ever to get Nobel Prize for his work in economics, uh, which was uh, quite a, a surprise for him because he was not considered to be an economist mainstream economy. Uh, but uh, he is also one of the founders of AI. And in his 72 book, uh, they mm, describe a number of uh, problems solved by people. And one of those problems is so-called crypt arithmetic. Now, uh, to understand this, you have to imagine that you have uh, three lines. Uh, on the first line, it says sand. On the next line, it says uh, more. And then on the third line, it says equals money. The idea is that if you replace letters with uh, natural numbers from 1 to 9, so there will be some answer uh, in terms of arithmetic, which is correct. So there is normally, if you cannot think of the answer, it's normal. It, for a normal human being, it takes like half an hour to figure out the answer using a paper and pencil. I definitely cannot solve those tasks very easily. So it was interesting for them just to record people solving those tasks, thinking out aloud. So they were talking what they are doing and then trying to simulate uh, those things using a special classical system that operates using rules that 
change the symbols, the very symbol that you could see on a blackboard if you were actually solving the task. So they were actually corresponding to what you will call external symbols on the blackboard. And actually the system worked pretty well and you could say even uh, frighteningly well because it can predict about about 90% of human performance. So uh, they were able to, by looking at the first steps that a person is making, to predict what kind of representation of the problem the person is using and then to predict the, ho- the whole uh, series of steps that would lead to a solution of the problem. And I think it's still a quite a remarkable uh, achievement to be able to predict how uh, this kind of task is being solved because this kind of task definitely requires some intelligence and it is one of the classical pieces in cognitive psychology. Even if Herbert Simon and Alan Newell were slightly, considered to be slightly radicals in cognitive psychology in the 70s, they were also not very mainstream because cognitive psychology was not so fond of computers as they were. Another example uh, goes against those rule-based symbols. It's taken from the 80s. It's uh, Rummelhart and MacLeland, uh, two uh, very important researchers on uh, parallel distributed processing or the neuron-like artificial networks. Uh, they made a system that was able to simulate the process of learning of uh, irregular English verbs. The process in children is an in, has an interesting feature, uh, which is different from uh, many other uh, processes that happen during uh, learning in humans, is that first there is a huge improvement. Uh, children learn a lot of Uh, frequent irregular verbs and some regular ones as well, but then they overgeneralize and by overgeneralizing they create a lot of uh, incorrect verbs like uh, goat uh, or count and then after some time they go back and they have a richer vocabulary and they also have those regular and irregular verbs at the same time. So they created an artificial network that was fed with some real uh, data on verbs in English uh, encoded in terms of how they are pronounced. Uh, And then the network was able to learn how to pronounce those verbs after some time and the very process of learning. Here you can see that the time dimension becomes crucial uh, is reflected in the process of uh, training uh, the artificial network. And until today, such connectionist networks are used, of course, in a slightly more refined way to explain cognitive tasks. I think connectionism and classical symbolic computations are two classical uh, foundational uh, positions in computational theory of mind. Then I went to two uh, more recent examples that I wanted to uh, use. One of them uses very recent models from computational neuroscience. This one is uh, created by Chris Elias Smith and John Conklin. They created a simple model of uh, rat's brain or part of a rat brain and the rat in question was actually trying to get uh, to orient itself uh, in space. And spatial orientation in rats is still very well uh, researched because rats are one of the favorite subjects in psychology since behaviorism. So there is a lot of data that we have and a lot of neuroscience data that we have. The remarkable thing in Chris Eliasmith's model is that it's not only a computational system, it is also a 
that it reflects uh, the time dimension of neurons and spiking of neurons. The neurons are not simply thought as of as simple like logical gates or something close to it, which is the case for classical connectionism, but they are thought of as uh, devices that generate uh, uh, series of spikes and they communicate using those spikes. And a lot of uh, the uh, mathematical uh, story behind the model is connected to the dynamical systems. That was important to me because dynamical systems mm-hmm. be something like a contender for uh, against computationalism. And here we go. There is a system which is both computational and dynamical. And you cannot really say that it's not a computer because it runs on a computer. It's kind of, kind of a computer. But at the same time, it has this important time, time dimension. And some of the work of the system is best described using control theory or those dynamical systems, which is actually the same from the mathematical point of view. And the fourth example is taken from robotics. Uh, we go from rats now to crickets. This is the work of Barbara Webb and her collaborators. Barbara Webb is one of the researchers in so-called biorobotics. Biorobotics explains how uh, certain animals do things uh, by building robots. So here we have this kind of attitude uh, connected with Richard Feynman. What I cannot do, I cannot understand. So they try to make something like a replica of an animal. Of course, it's not a whole, uh, the same scale replica. We cannot build a, a one-to-one scale model of, a, of an ant. The technology is not there. So we can build a large ant that would actually be a giant ant as compared to the the real one, but we can actually understand some of the processes going on in insects' brain. Insects are easier, of course, to model than mammals because they are just simpler. And uh, one of the favorite uh, model animals for web is the cricket. Crickets have the ability to work with the The sound source, the Namely, uh, they need to hear the chirps in order that the female is able to locate the male. So locating the sound source in space is important. And here, uh, the work consisted of understanding the morphology of the insect, which is crucial to understanding how the orientation, uh, how, how the information about the orientation of the sound is actually physically embedded in the system. This embeddedness uh, of how the information of, of, of uh, the sensory organ is important in understanding the information processing in the cricket. The errors of the cricket, but I cannot show you that right now, but if you imagine a human being, it would ha- have uh, two pairs of ears uh, and one pair would be on the back of of your uh, neck, and the other pair would be just on your elbows. And you would stick your elbows up, and then you would be able to hear more. If you have two pairs of ears, it's actually easier. And actually, with uh, with a setup, there is something like a tube connecting those pairs of ears. And the tube... Uh, uh, works as a very good directed receiver of sounds uh, of a special uh, frequency specific for crickets. So it, by the physical morphology, it filters out uh, something like a human voice. So if there are some crickets listening to us, they wouldn't actually mind because they would listen, they would hear mostly uh, things that other uh, uh, crickets uh, emits, so they would 
hear only the important chirps. And Webb produced something like a replica of this sound organ. And then it, she connected that to, uh, to a model of the neural system of the cricket that uh, uh, was used to control a robot that then was able to find uh, and move towards the sound source. So actually in their experiments, you could see uh, uh, a movie in which uh, uh, a robot is apparently sexually attracted to, uh, uh, to an insect and tries to, to move towards the, the, the sound source. So basically, this example is used by Andy Clark in his uh, accounts of embodied information processing or embodied computation. So this this is an idea that relates uh, to the embodiment, which is also thought to be somehow inconsistent with computation. And here we have a system which is both embodied and it's and and a computer because. The, the crucial part of the robot is also a neural network that uh, uh, also a spiking neural network, by the way, that controls the movement of the wheels and then in later versions, those are artificial legs, six legs uh, that the robot is using to go towards the sound source. So let me... Let me um, uh you know, I want to get to the way you combine the mechanistic explanatory model with the computational model, which which I thought was very interesting. But let me just, you know, you so you have these four examples that are of computational models, aka information processing models. And you mentioned before, you know, against the you know the worry of your account being too liberal, that you know one of the things that distinguishes the you know, the mind, the mental mechanisms or the mental computational models um, is the idea of, you know, what functions that they're computing um, or what, uh, could you say something more about that? Because presumably these four models are, they're certainly models of information processing but you you would want to say more, I take it, to distinguish which of those are minds or cognitive systems from those that are not cognitive systems, even if they're all information processing systems. Well, uh, in those these four examples, I think they, they in all of them you have systems that have a function to compute, so they, they are designed to compute. Uh, at the same time, uh, there are different things that they explain and different uh, and different scales of those models. So if you look at the connectionist model, for example, uh, it is quite restricted in what it is able to explain. It doesn't take a normal sound stream from human beings as its input. It's unable to parse sentences. It has a very, very minimalistic kind of approach, and it takes just a little bit of human behavior as its target. So it's a very, very limited scope model. The same goes for Newell and Simon. They have a very limited scope. So calling those two things cognitive systems, actually those things can run on a computer and they display some, uh, uh, well, properties of cognitive systems, mm-hmm. but they are not autonomous cognitive systems at all because they just, they model just a part of the behavior, part of what cognitive systems are doing. This, These are not uh, integrated uh, models of whole agents. Mm-hmm. This is uh, also in but less the case with the uh, other examples. These, the robot model might seem to be an agent, but this agent has a very limited repertoire of behaviors. But still, it is definitely uh, more self-contained than a model which is able only to do uh, uh, this kind of cryptarithmetic or to learn English verbs. 
but it also has a pretty limited number of features, like moving towards the sound of towards the sound source and um, orienting itself towards the sound source. That that's that's what it does. Mm-hmm. So it's a very limited thing, and calling those models cognitive. I don't do that because I think these are simply elucidate how they elucidate the mechanisms in real biological systems, but they are not cognitive systems per se. Um, what I say about cognition is that cognition definitely involves information processing because it's hard to imagine cognition without there being processing information. If you cannot, if you don't get information about yourself and about the environment, you're not cognizing. That's that, that, that's my thesis. I'm not saying that information processing is a sufficient uh, property, or uh, but I think it's uh, it's definitely necessary. There is a large debate on that that I try to sidestep because I don't think that all the sciences that deal with cognition will settle on a single definition of cognition because different disciplines, just like in life sciences, there is no overarching single single definition of life in systems biology and in ecology, but they don't need one to do the um, very important work that they do. So what you, you mentioned... Um you know, information, obviously, it's essential to the account. Could you say something more about uh, information? I mean, you, you also separated the idea of, you know, that computationalism has to involve symbols, or at least the notion of a symbol itself is, is uh, itself has to be uh, reconsidered in some way. Um, so could you... And I know later in the book you also turn specifically to the question of, of representation. Um, so could you say something about what you consider to be information? I mean, you say uh, information need not be about anything. It's, you know, so it's not semantic in some, you know, sense that many philosophers of mind will be thinking. Um, so could you just say something about the information part of the information processing? Uh, of course, it's a, it's, it's a very important uh, question here. The no, I, I have a general strategy of using the notions like computation and information the same way they would be used uh, uh, in information theory or in computability theory. So I have a preference and a strong preference for looking at how those terms are used in those formalized uh, mathematical theories. And the reason behind that is that I think those uh, disciplines have already talked a lot about the, uh, these notions, and the philosophical account should at least acknowledge the existence of these disciplines. And uh, just because there is a, a lot of confusion around those notions, I try to be as minimal uh, as possible at, at first. And with information, uh, we refer in the book to the work of one of the pioneers of information theory and cybernetics in the UK, Donald Donald McKay, who uh, claimed that there there are different measures of information, and I think most uh, uh, people have heard at least once in their life about Shannon and Shannon information because Claude Shannon is one of the founders of uh, the information theory, uh, which is actually a theory of communicating signals in a channel, and the the theory talks about the probabilities of getting a right message uh, by the receiver from the sender. Now, uh, the information, the notion of information that I use is, is more minimal than that. Uh, all I require there to be information is that there is a physical medium that has at least two distinguishable uh, states. So if it can go, it has, or using a different terminology, it has two degrees of freedom. If, if it can have at least two uh, different states, mm-hmm. and it 
it it already contains information. This kind of information, Mackay dubbed uh, structural information, uh, because there is all it says is that there is some structure, uh, and the structure is simply that there can be some difference. If there cannot be any difference in a medium, if it always stays the same, then there is no information. So if you can imagine a possible world in which there is only zero and nothing else, and this zero doesn't change, then there is. this is the world without any information in this sense. Well, that's, I mean, that is a very, very weak, weak sense of information. And it, it will, you know, definitely raise, you know, a similar sort of question um, to the pan-computationalism issue. Um, yeah. And this is one that, that philosophers of mind have, you know, have pressed on for, for many years, which is um, the difference between, you know, just sort of, you know, information that's transmitted in the Shannon sense or or your even more minimalist view of just you know a medium that has two different sta- at least two different states um so let let me let me get directly to the representation question um uh you 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 endorse uh the reversal of 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 Jerry Fodor's slogan, which was there's no computation without representation. And that was, you know, kind of built into his, you know, the classical computational model. You're getting away from that and you think that that's not true, um, but that there's something to the converse, that there's no representation without computation. Um, So can you explain how you understand the relationship between information as used to use just described it, and then representation, um, and then from there, you know, the your slogan: "No representation without computation." Uh, right, of course. Uh, the uh, I take the notion of information in this minimal sense, and the notion of representation in a much, much, much more demanding sense. So uh, one just one of the requirements of representation is that there is some information. So basically, it means that representation has to have a fit, some kind of medium that has at least two states or more. Uh, but there is a lot more to be said about representation if this is going to be uh, an interesting notion for uh Cognitive science. I think that one of the uh, important insights of uh, uh, recent theorizing about representation is that representation is a useful notion when we look at what representation does in cognitive systems. And what it does is that it is used uh, to control. Uh, behavior uh, and actions, including internal operations of the system. So it's not simply there. It's not simply about mirroring the world. Um, it's about acting in the world. And to flesh out this intuition, I uh, apply uh, a kind of action-oriented framework to say that information uh, becomes representation only when it is poised to control behavior and it also uh, satisfies certain uh, uh, additional uh, criteria which are obvious when we talk about representation. One of the obvious criteria of talking about representation is that representations have their targets uh, of course, information, in my minimal sense, doesn't have any target. It's not about anything. It's just a structure. So uh, uh, we need to be able to talk about also targets. I also think that we have to be able to, to, be able to uh, identify those targets using some at least minimal characteristics. So in traditional terms, representations do refer and they have some content, but also uh, systems that use representation, they're usually 
uh, evolved uh, to evaluate uh, those representations because they care about those representations. They they spend a lot of time getting those representations, so they want to be sure that those representations do not lead them to uh, executing inappropriate actions. So I think whenever you have a biological system that actually produces representation, you will have some additional systems that take care of checking whether the expected results of the action as are as what they were expected to be, and if they were not, they take some corrective actions. And, the, and these actions are representational insofar as they change the medium of information that was used uh, to drive the action. So it's not simply changing the action. It's about the changing the, medi- the, the physical medium that was used to drive the action. That story becomes slightly complex, but I think it has um, quite good biological underpinnings. There are people uh, whose work I actually read after writing my book, like uh, Nicholas Shee in Oxford, who have similar ideas and they connect representation with uh, how organisms evaluate uh, rep- representations and basically with uh, biological mechanisms of learning, reinforcement. Yeah. That is organisms in And we have a pretty good theory right now about that, about the neural systems involved in uh, detecting some inconsistencies and then trying to get attention of uh, the uh, of the whole system to, to some inconsistencies by uh, sending some dopamine signals and things like that. So the story becomes a bit more complex than a started uh, uh, philosophy of mind that took a pretty... Um, static view on representation. A representation was considered to be something which is a property or or an entity, something that does uh, is is pretty static. But I think cognitive systems are things that have some processes and operations, and they do that in time. And that is immensely important to understand that these processes actually change representation all the time. And that also involves acting and not only getting correspondences uh, with how the world is, but getting useful, selecting useful information and driving uh, useful exploration of the environment. I think that you can see this is definitely not a deflationary view on representation. So I take a deflationary step on information, mm. but not on, on representation. Okay. Um, one of the things that I do want to, uh, to get to is um, the, the, the connection right nowadays between the, what you might call the the computational level of explanation or the information processing description of a system um and then the you know the physical implementation um of that cognitive system or computational system um uh, traditionally right i mean Fodor and other computationalists have claimed there's no, you know, that the psychological or cognitive level is, is autonomous. That's a very, you know, controversial issue um, today about the relationship between these. Um, and they're usually, it's usually theorized, um, commonly anyway, in terms of Mars different levels, right? The computational level, the algorithmic level, and then the, uh, his implementation level. And one of the things you do in the book is to replace those levels with, um, something like the levels that Carl Craver talks about in his, in his book, um, the, 
the contextual level, uh, the isolated level of a mechanism, and then its parts, the constitu- constitutive level. So you're basically blending an information processing story with the mechanistic explanatory story. So I was wondering if you could just say something about that substitution uh, of the Marian view of levels with the mechanistic view of levels and and how that, you know, impacts thinking about the issue of, uh, of autonomy. Right. Uh, the uh, Marian story uh, has several important uh, uh, drawbacks, I think, that can be... Uh, well, mechanistic story uh, definitely seems to be easier uh, to use in many contexts, and I will show you how. Uh, the first thing is that many people don't understand that the three levels uh, in Mars' story are not actually levels. These are something like perspectives on the system, or at best levels of abstraction, because you can view the same using three different vocabularies. The first view is that it's a computational system. Here, the computational means that you simply ascribe a certain input-output function to the system. And that name uh, is so confusing to many people that uh, nobody else but Mar uses, uses actually the name computational level. Nowadays, people try to change the name to semantic level or uh, to knowledge level or to ecological level, like Kim Sterelny, because the, the very name is quite confusing, because it's the input-output of the system in the environment. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second level is the algorithmic level. So you got uh, so you have a perspective on a system, on how the process actually is, uh, what algorithm and what kind of data structures uh, are involved. So you have a computational story about it. And then there is the hardware level about which uh, Amar, even if he was a neuroscientist, has very little to say. It's simply implementation. Now, the uh, this uh, the methodology has turned out to be largely successful. So I'm not trying to undermine uh, the very good uh, uh, results that people have by applying the methodology that the basic story from Mar, the basic take-home message is that you have to get all those three stories at the same time to have a complete explanation. And I think it's right. But the the problem is that you have only three perspectives and there are shifts of grain, shifts of number of details and of focus in those levels. And that creates something like people don't know why there are only three levels. (laughs) an artificial discussion whether we should add some artificial levels, maybe one and a half or or a half level. And actually, I'm not joking. These are really well-argued papers that say that we should get yet another level in Mars story. But these are still not levels. So actually, the, 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 there is no ordering story between those. In contrast, mechanistic story is very simple-minded. It's very simple, and it's easier to apply when you have a much more complex stories to deal with because the levels and mechanisms are levels of composition. So the larger level simply contains the smaller, the lower level as its proper part, and so on. So the only relation you need is a relation of being a proper part. And that's it. You don't need to think about specifying those levels in any other terms. So if you want to have nine levels of composition, there is no problem in that. You can go to nine, you can go to ten. If you have multiple levels, there is no problem. And the artificial discussion is then changed. You don't you don't need really to, to introduce anything by specifying the vocabulary you need, you look at the processes uh, and components and operations on each level, and you you try to to get to grips with that. But the basic 
uh, idea, which is also very uh, important to me, is that the mechanism requires that the uh, mechanistic explanations bottom out at some basic level. So they require the implementation story uh, in Mars language to be treated very seriously. So, um, is would you would you agree that uh, I'm not sure if you're saying that? Um, so, if we take the isolated level um, in in the mechanistic story, and in, 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 at least in Craver's terminology, and you say that's, uh, I think you say that properly, that's the information processing uh, level. Um, so is it the case that at that one level in the mechanistic story, you can have all three of Mars' uh, descriptive, you know, levels? Well, uh, what I say is that if, if you uh, follow the, most of the uh, computational uh, modeling, you will see that usually only just on one level you, you have those uh, computational ascriptions, so I think it's usually at the isolated level, but it's or the zero level. But since there might be more levels and more can be computational, actually, the, it's a simplification on my part. So if you have a nine-level story, you might have uh, more than one computational uh, level. Uh, and let me just give a simple example. Mm-hmm. A laptop connected to uh, to a grid of other computers, and then you might explain the, the as a, as doing a computation without really actually uh, talking about the constitutive level of this grid, which are the laptops. But those laptops run some computations by themselves, which are constituted by the electronic process. So you might have several processes at the same time, and with Mar. It's unclear, actually, how we would apply those analysis because he talks about the environment being important. Mm-hmm. This is part that many people miss. Uh, I think Mar was a very uh, well. He was he read uh, James Gibson very uh, thoroughly, and he thought that there are some important insights in ecological psychology, even though he didn't agree with that all, he thought that uh, seeing how information processing is important in the environment, how what is the value of information processing in the environment is immensely important for explanation. I think that that's, this is the right way of putting uh, the story. But it's actually unclear whether you could have uh, uh, those things, those uh, three stories at any mechanistic level or not. Mm-hmm. So, usually people think that you can apply the, that only to to the complete system. Right. So, yeah. but if you have a very complex system, say, like the one that is this computer grid, mm-hmm. then basically it, it's no longer so, so, so clear what we could call the the environment, the environment of the laptop in my, at my home that is connected to this grid, or maybe uh, is the the this di- distributed structure, spatio-temporal structure of this huge grid that connects all those laptops. It's hard to say. Mm-hmm. So I, the the mechanistic story simply what it does it simplifies a lot, and it requires one thing which is very important. Uh, a lot of computational uh, uh, models are confirmed in a way that leaves a lot of under te- uh, theoretical underdetermination by evidence. So we don't have su- evidence to say which of the computational models actually is empirically confirmed. Mm-hmm. Well, that, that I we're we're running out of time, but I do have time for one more question. Um, and your answer just sort of leads naturally to it was uh, this idea that, you know, another, this is a traditional concern, but you also address it uh, directly in the book is, um, 
in what sense are information processing or computational uh, explanations, um, you know, really uh, referring to something that's real in the world or isn't, they're not eliminable in some way? Um, and I wasn't just, I wasn't sure how you were addressing this issue of, you know, it's just a convenient way of describing the system. And once we get more information uh, at a, you know, different level or in a different vocabulary or something, uh, the computational information processing language is really just a some sort of a crush or it's instrumentalist or it's in some way simply not essential to capturing the reality of the system. Um, and I was just wondering, um, how, do, how do you address that worry? Well, I try to be uh, a realist about computation and also uh, I think I, I follow some mechanism is contrary to what many people would say is actually reductionistic. So you have a reduction of computation to something else. And now you might think that reduction eliminates entities that it, that it talks about. But actually, it's not completely true. You might have different kinds of reduction in, uh, in theories. You might have a reduction whereas you can explain away a, an entity. Like you can uh, when, when we had uh, uh, phlogiston in theory of combustion, actually we could replace that completely and there is nothing like phlogiston in our current theory of uh, combustion. There is, we don't need phlogiston, we have oxygen and that plays a di- at least a, a significantly different role than phlogiston. But then you could have a reduction of water to, to use the uh, a very well-known example to H2O. Well, basically, water is more than H2O. It's also H2O2, and, and uh, it's, it's a very complex thing. But in standard philosophical talk, water is H2O. But it doesn't mean, if you know that water is H2O, that we don't have water anymore. It is H2O. We identify the structure of water, but it doesn't mean that we stop drinking water. We still drink water. It's simply a different name. We simply have a different label on it. So I think uh, it's people were so worried about uh, getting autonomy for psychology that that made made psychology so independent from other sciences that it became to look slightly dualistic. And I think uh, there is no reason to uh, to make it so autonomous because we want to draw evidence from as many sources as possible just to avoid the empirical underdetermination of theories. And that's one of the reasons why I think this kind of reductionist stance, whereas I say, yes, computations are those processes going on in physical mechanisms that have at least two uh, physical states as their information media and so on and so on. Of course, I identify them as computations. And you might, of course, replace the term computation with that lengthy uh, kind of predicate. But it would still say the same thing. It's like replacing the talk of water with the talk of H2O. It doesn't really change anything because I think those entities are the same entities. So I don't think there is elimination. I think it's something like a heuristic identity theory going on in a lot of mechanism. And this is kind of identity theory, which has no problem with with, uh, reduction because the computation is not eliminated. It's still there. It's simply a simpler name for complex things going on in the physical world. So I think that's that's not that's my answer. Okay. Um, well, we are out of time at this point. Um, so maybe to close, you can uh, say something about uh, your next project. Are you following up on this book, or have you turned to something different entirely? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get a, a better story about representation because that was a very uh, compressed uh, chapter and uh, 
some readers complain that it simply makes no sense to them. <laughs> I try to, to, to expand on that story. And at the same time, I got fascinated with the varied structures of, of models used in uh, computational neuroscience and cognitive science. Sometimes they are so complex and uh, uh, so hard to understand that and there are lots of things that people did not look at uh, as carefully as they should. So I think that those two things are right now my uh, major uh, interests. Okay. Well, um, uh, thank you very much again for, for your time and talking about your book. Uh, thank you for your kind invitation. You've been listening to an interview with Marcin Mukowski, an assistant professor at the Institute of Philosophy of Mind of the Polish Academy of Sciences. We've been talking about his new book, Explaining the Computational Mind, which is just out from the MIT Press. I'm Carrie Figdor. This is New Books in Philosophy. I hope you enjoyed the podcast, and thank you for listening.